women walking along the platform with rapturous faces, greeted by immaculate stewards standing to attention outside every carriage. She saw boxes of oysters glistening on ice, whole sides of bacon slung on hooks, and cartloads of every kind of fruit being loaded on board. And so, the day after the dinner party, Agatha went to Cook's and cancelled her tickets to the Caribbean. It took less than a week to sort out the visas for Syria and Iraq, and by the weekend, she was boarding the train that would take her on the first leg of the journey from London to Dover. Her friend and assistant, Charlotte, came to see her off. She thought it very unwise for a woman to be travelling alone to the Middle East, but she knew Agatha well enough not to try talking her out of it. As they said their goodbyes, she cautioned her friend about the men she was likely to encounter in Baghdad. You'd better be careful, she said. Those blue eyes of yours will turn heads, you know. Agatha smiled at this kind, clumsy attempt to make her feel better about herself. On her wedding day, what seemed like a hundred years ago, Archie had said her eyes were incredible, like the sky when you flew above storm clouds. After the service, as they came out of church, he'd squeezed her arm and said, Promise me one more thing, will you? Promise me you'll always be beautiful. She remembered laughing and kissing him, then crossing her heart with her finger. You'd love me just the same if I wasn't, though, wouldn't you? She said. His own smile had disappeared as he replied. Perhaps, perhaps I would, but it wouldn't be quite the same. Somehow that promise had been broken. What was it, she wondered, that had made her cease to be beautiful to him? Was it having a baby? Failing to lose the four or five pounds she'd put on with pregnancy? Or was it simply that love had blinded him, and he'd woken up one morning with the realization that he could have done better? Don't forget my Turkish slippers, Charlotte yelled as a train sounded a warning blast. Agatha waved through the window, the sulfurous smoke of the engine filling her nostrils. To her, it was a good smell, an exciting smell. She was turning a page. Agatha Christie, wife, was about to become Mary Miller, adventurous. The morning sunshine pierced the lace curtains on the second floor of number six, Cornet Mansions, dappling the stack of green leather suitcases on Nancy's bed. She took two hatboxes from the top of the wardrobe and added them to the teetering pile of luggage. Then she walked across to the window. In the park below, people were already on the move. Two uniformed nannies in shiny black straw hats pushed perambulators through drifts of dry, golden leaves. A milkman on a horse-drawn cart shouted something through the railings, and one of the women looked around, smiling and shaking her head. Somewhere in the bushes, a dog barked, and ducks cackled as they rose from the pond. In the distance, Nancy could see Buckingham Palace, the Union Jack fluttering in a light northwesterly breeze. This was a view she was never going to see again. Her room looked forlorn, with the cases piled on the bed. The dressing table was stripped of everything familiar, the jewel-colored bottles of perfume, the silver hairbrush, comb, and hand mirror, the crystal jars of powder and cold cream, and the precious photograph that was in her handbag, wrapped in a scarf ruined by moth holes. When she had pulled out the square of peacock print silk, she had caught a faint whiff of lily of the valley. The scarf had belonged to her mother and retained a trace of her favorite scent. The smell had undone Nancy. The tears she had dammed up came flooding out. She could hear her mother's voice as she lay weeping into her pillow. 
Come on now, darling. A true lady should always be able to control herself. In a moment, she would go downstairs to the morning room, where the man she was about to leave forever would be sitting at the table behind his copy of the Financial Times. He would look up absent-mindedly as she passed his chair. The paper would be laid aside only when Redfern brought in his breakfast of poached eggs, sausage, mushrooms, and bacon. As he ate, he would probably ask her what she planned to do today. He never actually listened to her replies, so she could very likely dispense with the lie she had prepared. He would go off to his club with no inkling that she was about to embark on a journey halfway round the world. By the time he was eating his lunch, she would have boarded the train that would take her to Dover. When he got home, she would already be in France. She reached inside her handbag and pulled out the tickets she had bought by pawning the diamond necklace and earrings she had inherited on her 21st.